Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week is exciting. We're starting a brand new series in the book of Acts called Jesus Goes Global. So turning your Bibles to the book of Acts as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Jesus Goes Global. I wonder if you like stories of a great and stunning success that occurs against the odds. Not that I'm a gambling man, for I am definitely not that. And also, definitely, I do not believe in the idea of the odds or of chance. You know, since I know that God orders all things according to the counsels of his will, that he controls even the die that is cast into the lap, and that, by the way, is in Proverbs 16.33, Every outcome of what seems random is, in fact, not random at all. It's controlled and ordered by God according to the purposes of his infinite wisdom. Well, since that's true, I can't believe that anything is random or chance. But just for a moment, let's assume that I do think that the world is a stage in which random and purposeless things actually exist. If that's what I would have thought, I would then have assumed that the growth of the Jesus movement into a global phenomenon, which it is today, well, it is truly against all odds. Why? Well, unlike other religions, or for that matter, other empires, or, you know, philosophical or political theories, Christianity seemed to have had very little chance of succeeding. Christianity had no armies or political power. Human power centers to launch it onto a global stage were simply absent. You know, there are religions in the world today that became global because of the advance of armies and the utter defeat of the enemy forces that stood against them. But in contrast, the Jesus movement had no armies. Indeed, as Paul would later write to the Corinthian Christians, 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Not many. Indeed, the majority of the Christians came either from the lowest classes of the Gentiles or among the hated Jews. Consider, for example, when Jesus died, he had 11 male disciples and a handful of women who were his followers. Let's say, just for argument's sake, about 20 people in all. And within two centuries, the Christian movement would count about 3 million followers. And by the end of the fourth century or the end of the 300s, about 30 million calling themselves followers of Jesus. And all of that in the face of both a hostile Judaism and a hostile Roman authority. And that's the crazy thing. In the first century world, the world in which Christianity was born, everyone thought that the favor of God or the favor of the gods was seen in the realms of human power and success. Again, if you believed in random chance, this is a story against the odds. I mean, who believes in a crucified God in the first place and that this God has the poor for followers. But of course, there is another way of seeing this astonishing rise of the Christian faith. Let me take you back to the week just before Jesus is crucified. It's a Tuesday. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. One of them remarks on the beauty of those massive stones that make up the temple. And Jesus responds by predicting that in a short while, not one of those stones would be left standing on top of another. Every single one of them would be thrown down. Indeed, those words which were uttered in AD 33 were fulfilled less than 40 years later. As the Romans burned Jerusalem down and slaughtered an incredible mass of people, 
and dismantled the entire temple, leaving no remnant of it remaining. As Jesus is teaching these things, his disciples responded both with amazement and horror. When will these things be, they ask, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? You see, they've just assumed that if the temple was to be destroyed, well, then such an event must signal the apocalypse and the very end of human history. And with that, the day when the Lord arrives and Jesus comes and rightfully takes his place as the ruler of the human race. So in their minds, the destruction of the temple must then be the end of time, the event that they have been waiting for. And Jesus then responds by saying, look, don't let anyone lead you astray. Before the end of the world comes, a great many things, not just the destruction of the temple, but a great many other things must happen as well. Wars are going to happen, along with false messiahs and the rise and fall of kingdoms. And you, he says, you're going to be savagely persecuted. And then among all things that must happen before the end comes, Matthew 24, 14 records Jesus as saying, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, from that event, fast forward to Jesus. He's now again on the Mount of Olives. He's now been raised from the dead, and just before he ascends into heaven, he gives his disciples a final word, and it's recorded in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So from this, we see that Jesus not only said that he would not return until the nations had heard, and that men and women would be made disciples from all the nations, but he's commanded that the task of making disciples of every nation would become the mission of the church. But as I've been saying, that seems like a great plan. But how in the world is that going to happen? And how does a group of powerless followers accomplish that? Yet we have to admit, they have seen the kingdom of God break into the present. Death has been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus. And they've now come to believe that all power in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. So the knowledge that Jesus is Lord must mean that he is Lord of nations and empires and all human civilizations. And clearly, those early followers believed that and more. They believed that the making of disciples from all nations would be unstoppable. But how did it happen? Well, the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the New Testament, tells us how that started. And in that sense, studying this book should also give us the indication that this work of making disciples of Jesus among all the peoples of the earth just can't stop. And once the task is complete, the end of the ages will come upon us. Today, I'm beginning a new series in which we will make a beginning of the study of the book of Acts. Over the next three weeks, we will cover the first chapters of this book, This book tells us not only how the gospel made such amazing advances, but then by by implication, how we might expect the gospel to advance today. And then also, by way of application, what our role is in just such a process. Well, where do we start? I think the best place to begin is to talk about the man who wrote this book. His name is Luke. Now, at the outset, I have to admit that nowhere in the book does the author actually identify himself. But there is something in the book that does seem to give us some indication as to who he was. In Acts 16, 10 to 17, suddenly in the middle of telling the story, the author breaks in by using the pronoun we. 
Obviously, the author has joined the Apostle Paul on his missionary journey. And then again, the same thing repeats itself in Acts 20, 5 to 15. And then again in chapter 21, 1 to 18. Then in chapter 27, 1 to 29. And then again in chapter 28, 1 to 16. And so, on five separate occasions, the author mentions that he is a part of Paul's missionary team. He's an eyewitness of what's occurring. But that's all we know. The author was obviously a first-century Christian who joined Paul's missionary activity on five separate occasions. But of course, as we know, Paul had a number of missionary associates, and that only narrows it down. It doesn't yet tell us who the author is. But here's a second hint. Acts 1 verse 1, that is, the very first line in this book begins as follows. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And there it is. The author has written an earlier book, and just like this book, he's addressing a man by the name of Theophilus. Well, let's look at the first paragraph in the book of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Well, in fact, the book of Acts is volume two of this author's writings. The first volume is the book of Luke. It chronicles the life of Jesus. And then volume two is the book that chronicles the history of the early proclamation of Jesus, taking the message of Jesus to the world. Now, of course, the book of Acts only covers a time period of slightly under 30 years of the preaching of Jesus, and then the book just ends. But let's get back to the author. As early as the second century, that is in the 100s, early church leaders have identified the author of Acts. The most famous example is that of a man named Irenaeus, who positively identified the author as Luke. And furthermore, what's equally interesting is that no one in the early church challenged that assumption. Now, this book is definitely written by Luke, the man who frequently joined Paul in his missionary work and who obviously was discipled and trained by Paul, the great missionary to the Gentiles. Carissa wrote to say, thank you, Dr. John Newfeld, for consistently providing deeply meaningful and theologically rich Bible teaching. I have particularly appreciated the new video series it is encouraging to my spirit to hear words of truth and hope through his teaching. Thank you for continuing your work of faithfully proclaiming God's Word. We've been so grateful to introduce Back to the Bible Canada's new weekly video Bible teaching series. Each week, Dr. Newfeld searches deeply into God's Word, seeking truth for living a life that glorifies God. All of these programs can be viewed online or by subscribing to the Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel where both new and previous series can be accessed. And when you visit, don't forget to subscribe to the channel. For more information about every ministry resource or to support this ministry financially, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. What do we know about Luke and why did he write this book, a book that chronicles the first 30 years in the life of the church? 
Well, we know that the Bible only actually mentions Luke's name on three occasions. One is just a passing reference from Paul that we find in Philemon. It's in verses 23 and 24. It says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Well, given that Paul writes this greeting while he's in prison, on that note, one of those associates is a man named Demas, and he seems at some time to have deserted Paul in the hours of Paul's greatest need. And Paul says he loves the world. Now, how about Luke? How did he do in Paul's time of need? 2 Timothy 4, 10 and 11, Paul says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Indeed, Luke seems to have been not only loyal to Paul, but ready at any moment to accept the burden of suffering if that's what loyalty to Jesus and commitment to the gospel demanded of him. What else do we know about this man? As I've said, there are only three New Testament references to him, and the third is one that's, well, it's especially revealing. Colossians 4.14, Paul says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so it would seem that Luke is a physician by trade, but a Christian by profession. You know, whenever he was able, even at personal inconvenience, he gave himself to missionary work and he paid the price for it. You know, according to the book of Luke, Luke is also a very capable historian. So passionate about missions, capable in history. It's not hard to see why he writes this book. We also know that he was most likely a Gentile, so from that perspective, he's actually the only Gentile author of any book in her Bible. It's significant because so much of the book of Acts is taken up in bringing the gospel to the Gentile world. Now, in terms of the actual book itself, we should observe that the history that is presented to us in this book seems to follow Jesus' words that the gospel would first be taken to Jerusalem, then to Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. So let's very briefly do a simple and easy to understand outline of the 28 chapters that make up the book of Acts. Chapters one and two are about the time period from the resurrection of Jesus and then moving very quickly to his ascension, then to the day of Pentecost. It's very important and an introductory first section because Luke wants us to see an essential point that we should not miss. The mission to reach the world is wild-eyed and it's crazy and it's utterly impossible. It is a story against all odds, and if it's a matter of the odds, we should put all of our money on the fairly certain probability that this will certainly be a failure. But Luke wants us to understand that this is not that kind of a tracing of history. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, these men would have surely failed. But Jesus had promised them that they would receive power after the Holy Spirit had come upon them. And then, in consequence of that amazing encounter with the third person of the Trinity, they would surely be witnesses of Jesus unto the very ends of the earth. See, that's why the book of Acts can never be thought of as a simple recounting of history. It wasn't intended to be that. It's intended as a demonstrable testimony that the Holy Spirit has come and his power to energize the church into global mission is more powerful than all the armies of the world, all the political might of change agents in the seat of government, and all the unexpected global forces that might derail this project at any moment. Now, this is not a book about the odds. This is a book that chronicles not just the acts of the apostles, 
but it chronicles the acts of the Holy Spirit and what he has done in the lives of those who were, outside of that, simply ordinary people. See, that's the starting point of Acts. And Luke says this adventure actually began not as a group of missionary statesmen, you know, met together in a room and planned a strategy. It began in a very different room. It was the upper room. As a group of men and women were filled with the Holy Spirit, that one fact is the central fact of the entire mission of the church. Now then, as I've said, that's the first two chapters of the book. And then, having laid that important groundwork, the next three chapters, that is, from chapter 3 through to chapter 5, is the story of the proclamation of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. And as we know, that's no easy feat. Just a short time before this section began, Jesus was tried and crucified in Jerusalem. And the men of power, that is the Jewish ruling Sanhedrin, that is responsible for the drive to crucify Jesus, well, they're still in power, and these men will tightly control the religious life in Jerusalem. And so seen from that perspective, clearly, the gospel should have died on the streets of Jerusalem. When the apostles refused to be intimidated, we know that a standoff was about to ensue, and clearly, this will be a battle of wills. One side has the power of the state and of government, and the other has the power of the Spirit. How well will this drama play out? Well, the answer, Luke will tell us. And by the way, that's as far as we're going to get in this short three-week study of the book of Acts. But that story needs to be told. It's an especially relevant story for all of us who are not going on global missions. You know, it's a story of those who want to be faithful to Jesus where we presently live. And it's the story of how gospel proclamation is relevant and powerful even if we never leave our home country. But of course, Luke is only starting to clear his throat, if you will, or sharpen his pencil. He has so much more to write. The third section of Acts is about the gospel moving from Jerusalem and out into the rest of Israel, that is, out into the regions of Judea and further. And that's covered in chapters 6 through 12. And again, if we thought that history was only a series of random chance events, well, we wouldn't be surprised to notice that this part of the story, it all seems to happen by accident. Jerusalem and the political situation there has reached a boiling point. Open pressure and open hostility eventually leads to the death of the first Christian martyr, a man named Stephen. The outbreak of persecution forces the apostles out of Jerusalem, and they go out now, and they proclaim the gospel in the rest of Judea. And that's how world missions began. And now the fourth and last section of Acts, that covers from chapter 13, and it goes to the end of chapter 28, which, of course, is the end of the book. Now, this is the bulk of the material in Acts, and it shouldn't surprise us that this vast section can be broken down into five subsections. Subsection number one is Acts 13 and 14. Acts 13 actually surprises us. It begins with the words, now there were in the church in Antioch, and you got to stop, and what have we just read here? There's a church in Antioch? Well, who knew? When did that happen? Antioch isn't in Israel. It's to the north. It's in Syria. And then in that church, there clearly is a congregation that's composed of Jews and Gentiles. So it would seem that the church has already begun to be global. Well, how did that happen so quickly? Well, it happened because of something we're told about in Acts chapter 10. But it's in this section that we come upon the first ever deliberate missionary journey. And amazingly, it's a smashing success, even though Paul and Barnabas didn't really get that far from home. But that success leads to a controversy. It's a controversy so intense that it almost ended the church's mission before it actually took off. 
that's our second subsection, and that's Acts chapter 15. What will the church do with the ever-increasing Gentile converts? How can Gentiles who don't keep Jewish laws and tradition be made a part of the growing Jesus movement? That matter gets settled, and then we come to subsection three. It's Paul's second missionary journey in which the gospel crosses the Mediterranean, and then it's followed by subsection four, chapter 18 to 21, Paul's third missionary journey, and then subsection five, chapter 21 to 28, Paul's arrest and imprisonment, and then the book ends with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome even while he's in prison. And with that, the book very abruptly simply ends. Luke's probably writing in about the year AD 62, and that's how far the story has gotten to that point in time. And that is the point. You know, the story really doesn't end. You know, many people have looked at Acts as the only unfinished book in our Bible, with the implication that in the lives of God's people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, this book is still being written today. And it will continue to be written until the very moment that the heavens are parted and Jesus Christ appears and draws this part of human history to an end. Acts is the story of every Christian who loves Christ and who longs to see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to every creature under heaven until every race and tribe and tongue has heard. It's this task that is the mission of our lives. But Acts is also the story that reminds us that it's an impossible task. Were it not for the Holy Spirit, it would never be done. This is the story of how Jesus was made known to the world. It's a story we should all read with great interest. John, thanks for your message. Thank you for this series. Let me ask you this question. Is it true to say a significant message in the book of Acts to the church is stop being content, stop being complacent? Yeah, I, I suppose uh, if, if by being content, uh, we mean uh, to be content uh, to simply uh, allow the gospel to minister to me without concern uh, for the unreached in this world. I mean, it, we should never be content until every last man, woman, and child has heard the gospel and knows how to respond. That's the command we have received from our Savior, and we ought to be about the Master's business. So that's where we should be. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Every week in doubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada airs a new insightful conversation about issues of life and faith targeted to a young adult audience. These conversations include Christian pastors and leaders from around the globe discussing important topics from a biblical perspective. Topics such as the sanctity of life or forgiveness, sexuality, the church, issues of mental health, loneliness, abuse, always with the intention of offering a biblical response. Join In Doubt on air on the indoubt.ca website, the Indoubt mobile app, or subscribe for our weekly podcast. We live in a time and place where the daily questions of life and faith are challenging. We believe the Bible will guide us toward truth and, and challenge us to live radically different lives. For more information about In Doubt, or if you'd like to support this ministry, 
Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.